Welcome to the Aerospace Engineering Podcast. My name is Reiner Groh, Research Fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering, and on this podcast I have conversations with aerospace pioneers about new technologies at the cutting edge of aerospace design and research. Special thanks go to my supporters on Patreon, who make this podcast possible. If you enjoy the Aerospace Engineering Podcast and would like to support it, then head over to patreon.com forward slash aerospace. There are multiple levels of support, but pledging even a dollar an episode is highly appreciated. Thanks for your support. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Mark Osman is the co-founder and CEO of Airflow, a California-based startup that is building an electric short-haul cargo aircraft. Mark holds a commercial pilot license and, among other endeavors, was previously the chief strategist for Airbus's all-electric tilt-wing vehicle demonstrator, known as Vahana. Alongside four other former Vahana team members, Mark and the team at Airflow are building an aerial logistics network to move short-haul cargo quickly and cost-effectively by utilizing unused airspace around cities. Key to Airflow's vision is ESTOL, or Electric Short Takeoff and Landing. Airflow's ESTOL aircraft require only a few hundred feet for takeoff and landing, about the length of a football field, which means that runways can be built almost anywhere even under existing regulations. What is more, even larger rooftops that can fit more than three conventional helipads could feasibly be used as a runway. Given the aerodynamic efficiency advantages of fixed-wing aircraft over rotary vertical takeoff and landing, or VTOL aircraft, Airflow have come up with an interesting alternative concept to many other companies in the growing urban mobility sector. So in this episode of the Aerospace Engineering Podcast, Mark and I talk about Airflow's vision of building the urban logistics network of the future, some of the misconceptions of e-stall and EVTOL, the advantages of electric powertrains beyond reducing emissions, the technology Airflow is developing and challenges that need to be overcome, and striking a balance between financial and engineering incentives. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did, but now without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Mark Osman. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Rainer, thank you for having me. So before we start talking about your company, Airflow, would you mind telling our listeners a little bit about your background? Um, So how has your career evolved to where you are today? And what is your kind of background in the engineering or even the aerospace engineering sector? Sure. So my my father was an airline pilot. My mother was a a stewardess. And... uh, so I've, I've kind of been around aircraft my whole life. Um, I, I got my uh, private pilot's license in college. And, uh, you know, my, my dad certainly was interested in seeing that happen. So he paid for part of that. But I was also pumping gas uh, out at the airport uh, to help pay for that as well. And it kind of worked out to about for every five hours of pumping gas, I got one hour of flight time. And I thought that was a pretty good trade off. And uh, so after college, uh, ended up flying in the Navy. I was a naval flight officer on the P-3 Orion and did uh, tour, two deployments to the Middle East. Uh, and then after that, went out and went to grad school for an MBA. So more of a focus on the business side of things. Uh, and then after that, worked in, in tech. Um, 
and, and I always wanted to work in aviation, but I, I didn't think it was very exciting. You know, it's very regulated and uh, not a lot of new entrants and kind of just very incremental improvements on the same thing. So I wasn't too attracted to that. But uh, an opportunity came along to, to work at Eclipse Aviation. And that was started by a former uh, early Microsoft employee, and he was also a pilot. And uh, that was really an exciting opportunity, I thought, because the idea was to build the world's first very light jet and change the economics of, of current uh, air travel. And so I ended up uh, uh, working at uh, Eclipse for four years. And, and that was kind of a swing for the fences, really exciting, a lot of great people there. Um, but it was clear that that uh, was just, uh, you know, not going to get over the fence. And so I ended up um, starting a company called Vertical Power. And we made avionics for small aircraft, specifically a, a, a digital power distribution system, uh, and uh, ran that for seven years and sold that in, at the end of 2013 and stayed with them just for a little bit. But then uh, ended up um, moving out to the Bay Area here, you know, Silicon Valley, uh, and, and really wanted to stay in aviation if I could. And so that kind of manifested itself in the form of uh, uh, working with several different drone companies and doing some interesting consulting work for, for companies working on autonomy and working on VTOL aircraft. Uh, and, and then uh, most recently ended up uh, on the Airbus Fahana program where uh, uh, Airbus had set up a Silicon Valley outpost to explore new technologies. And uh, we had built uh, a, a full-scale uh, electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft uh, that was a technology demonstrator. And, and there I was the chief strategist. And so I was focused uh, around um, understanding uh, things like operating costs and uh, risk mitigation and understanding how we got from a technology demonstrator to a production aircraft and what all the roadblocks were along the way. Uh, and, and so we, we actually, you know, built and flew this. We flew about 140 flights uh, and, and learned a lot on the engineering side and, and uh, learned a lot on the regulatory side. Uh, I spent a lot of time looking into autonomy and, and the issues around autonomy and timeframes and how it's being handled and the different approaches. Um, and and um, met some really great people on that team as well. And as a result of kind of our combined experience uh, at, at Bahana, <clears throat> we thought that uh, we really believed in electric propulsion. We believed in urban air mobility. We believed that electric propulsion could, in fact, uh, uh, create some incredible new opportunities and expand the benefits of aviation. And so we wanted to pursue that, but we thought that um, VTOL was just a way too expensive and complex approach. And, uh, and that's how we settled on short takeoff and landing. And uh, the, the real exciting uh, opportunity there is that we're developing aircraft with capabilities that just don't exist today and that you can't do with piston or turbine aircraft. Uh, and so that's the basis of, of airflow. And here we are today. Great. So, uh, I mean, that's a very varied, yeah, background in, in the aerospace in industry, both you know from from the pilot's perspective, but also now, as you as you just laid out from from the design perspective and even the regulatory side. So it's it's great to hear that all of this is now flowing into your new project at Airflow. So could you perhaps just provide some some context, about, you know, about your company, about Airflow? So. I know how did the company start, and what is it specifically? What is the the problem that uh, you set out to solve? Yeah, well, the, the Airflow is a, the third company I've started. Uh, the first one was a telecommunication software company that uh, started uh, uh, right after the dot com bust happened, uh, and um, the second was Vertical Power, which I talked to you earlier about, which was actually in aviation. Uh, and uh, and what I've learned along the way is that you um, 
you want to identify a problem that you're solving and then figure out a solution to solve that problem. And so in this case, we we knew that uh, electric aircraft could uh, could you know could carry passengers or cargo uh, within cargo you know which market specifically within passengers what would be the mission that we would do and so um, we we came up with a hypothesis that basically said uh, we can move cargo um, between warehouses uh, because uh, the the logistics market today is is changing rapidly to support uh, same day e commerce. And kind of moving from this national centralized hub model to a regional distribution model, and um, so so we created a hypothesis, and then went out and actually talked to a lot of a lot of the large logistics companies and companies who are doing e-commerce uh, and retailers who are moving into e-commerce, and and had some initial conversations with them to sort of understand how they view the world, and um, and, and as you can imagine, some were were more interested in talking to us than others. But the ones that were interested in talking to us provided some valuable feedback, and that in turn drove uh, drove a set of requirements uh, around, um, you know, the 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 range of the aircraft, uh, the turnaround time, uh, thinking about the operating environment that they want to be in, uh, the size of the cargo bay, um, you know, piloted versus autonomous, uh, and so as as it shows on our website, the type of air, you know, what, what fell out of those conversations was a way to move cargo. Uh, throughout the day and throughout the night with within a local regional area and not wanting to uh, have to build out, uh, you know, charging infrastructure and wanting rapid turnaround times. Operating costs are a very important part of that. And, you know, as we modeled it out, we realized that the operating costs of a short takeoff and landing aircraft were significantly lower than those of a vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. And we we have on our on our web page at airflow.aero, there's a blog post uh, that describes this as a, a new aircraft for uh, urban air mobility. And in there, we, we kind of make the case and describe what, what the cost drivers are and why a, 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 a stole aircraft is, is a, a great aircraft for uh, this urban air mobility market. Um, but uh, so, so we thought that carrying cargo was, was very relevant. And we thought that, um, you know, the, the economics of a stole were very relevant. And when you actually drill down and look at it, the, uh, there's a lot of places uh, you, you can take off and land a short takeoff and landing aircraft. And just for, for, for example, you know, an aircraft, typically a 2000 foot runway is a pretty short runway. Our aircraft can take off and land uh, in, in 150 feet on a 300 foot runway. So that's pretty significant uh, savings. If you look at what a VTOL needs, a VTOL needs about a 50 foot pad with some safety area. So about a hundred feet. So basically for three helipads next to each other, um, you can land a stole, but you can save 70% on operating costs. So that seems like a pretty reasonable trade-off to make. Uh, and, and when you look at distribution centers, you can easily put a 300-foot runway on top of or next to a distribution center. So it all kind of came together really nicely in, in that regard. And, and we thought we had a com- pretty compelling value proposition to, to move forward. Okay, great. So if I just kind of try to summarize that. So basically, you're saying that basically for e-commerce and in general, this kind of urban logistics revolution, um, where we're basically building new logistics networks for the future, one key enabling factor there could be this short um, takeoff and landing uh, capability, which is different than the the EV tolls or the vertical takeoff and landing, because you still do require a runway to uh, mm-hmm. build some horizontal speed to take off. Um, but that 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 basically is a is a key enabler. 
to to build this um, logistics uh, network. So could you could you just elaborate a little bit more on this? Maybe on this blog post that you were talking about about this misconception that only the EV toll will enable kind of uh, urban air mobility, and that in fact you know with some of the capabilities that you're developing, that ES toll or, or short takeoff um, landing it would also be um, a key enabler. Yeah, I I, um, I I don't know why it's kind of, but the market has just kind of taken off this way, where VTOLs have, uh, have sort of been associated with urban air mobility, and I, I think maybe because Uber popularized that that concept, and they've really been driving a lot of the the thinking around this and the publicity around this, and and um, so I think it's really great that they've brought a lot of attention to this market, um, but at the same time, uh, I think as an industry, we <clears throat> we need to consider all the options that are available. And certainly, just like in today's aviation uh, environment, there are situations where you have to use a helicopter. Uh, you, you know, the top of skyscrapers or oil rigs um, in, in certain landing sites in, in, in dense urban areas um, where only a helicopter will, will work. Um, but the challenge is helicopters are really expensive and they're really noisy. So they really have, have been, in some cities, just banned from, from flying around the, the urban areas. Uh, as well as suburban areas. So, uh, you know, what are the other options? Well, uh, a short takeoff and landing aircraft needs three of those helipads effectively, so not much more. And it, it, this is not, you know, the, both VTOL and STOL can operate outside of the traditional airport infrastructure. So I'll call them next generation, uh, you know, aerodromes or, or, or skyports, whatever you want to call them, uh, can be built to support these these new vehicles. And uh, even when you look at some of the configurations that Uber has has promoted, um, many of those configurations can actually work both for a short takeoff and landing aircraft as well as a vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. Uh, so you might have three helipads or four helipads next to each other. Well, those can those can act as a runway as well. Today's aviation system they use vertical lift and they use fixed wing aircraft. Uh, and the vertical lift aircraft are typically used only in situations where you truly have a need for vertical lift, uh, primarily because of the cost of those aircraft, the operating cost of those aircraft. And so if, if, a, if a company has the option to use a, a lower cost way to accomplish the same mission, they're generally going to want to do that. And so that's why we think STOL is a really compelling option. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is definitely a reason why we have fixed wing aircraft, and that's just because you know the lift to drag specific you know characteristics that you can get out are way superior to um, you know basically either an eVTOL aircraft or or a helicopter where you have significantly more drag and mm -hmm. the system is not as efficient as as a fixed wing aircraft. So yeah, absolutely. Ideally, you want to be able to. Uh, use a fixed wing aircraft and it sounds like this this concept of, of stall of the short uh, takeoff minimizing the runway is is one is like the ideal um you know step in in the right direction i am curious just to to find out a little bit more about you know some of the key specifications and the capabilities of the aircraft that you're currently developing so one of the questions that i'm asking myself is that of course electric aircraft have all of these environmental advantages in, in that they're emission free during operation um, but what, what are some of the other um, kind of benefits that you get from from having an electric powertrain? So, or put basically differently, why can't you build your vision using a kind of small propeller-powered aircraft? Why is that not possible? Right, and and you know that was one of the first questions we asked ourselves: Could we do this with an existing aircraft, like uh, you know uh, everything from a Husky to a Piper Cub to a Cessna one eighty five? 
you know, or even a Beaver, which is which is a, a bigger aircraft. Um, why can't you do it with that? And and the the real uh, there's 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 several ways to actually kind of think about this um, from a, a pure kind of you know electric propulsion perspective. The 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 real benefit of electric propulsion is that you can separate the power generation from the propulsion component of it. And in a piston or a turbine engine, those have to be linked together. Whereas you can have a battery separate from the motor and electric propulsion. That means you can put the battery in the wings or in the fuselage, and then you can put the motors on the wings. And in the case of a short takeoff and landing aircraft, uh, you can put a whole bunch of, when I say a whole bunch, you know, anywhere from eight to 16 motors uh, along the leading edge of the wings, maybe on the tail too, if, if the design warrants that. And so you can blow air over the wings. And um, it's called a blown wing uh, configuration. And this has been explored for 50 years. NASA and others have explored blown wing technology. Uh, and, it, you know, it, 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 it might work well on very large aircraft with, with turbine engines. Uh, you know, the C-17 is, is, is effectively a, a kind of a blown wing stole uh, aircraft. It actually blows air into the flaps and then the flaps blow the air down to give it more lift. Um, so it's not really a blown wing, but it you know it it really ducks the air in a way that gives you more lift at slower speeds. Um, and when you get down to smaller aircraft, turbine engines and piston engines don't scale down very well, so they're very very inefficient and they're very noisy uh, at at smaller sizes. And so if we put a, a whole bunch of small uh, engines on the wings, it, it they would be heavy and they'd be it's just a maintenance nightmare. They'd be very noisy. Uh, and it would just it, it wouldn't be practical to do that, and that's why no one's done that so far. But but electric motors, in fact, uh, scale very linearly, uh, you know, uh, in terms of weight versus uh, power, and uh, and so that we can put a bunch of smaller motors on the wings and get this blown wing effect. So uh, what it does is it blows more air over the wing at slower speeds, giving us more lift and more control at slower air speeds, uh, enabling this. And then we combine that with a precision landing uh, control system that we're building. Uh, and uh, that allows us to fly the aircraft very safely and repeatably uh, during these approach to landing uh, part of the flight, where that's typically a very dangerous part of the flight because you're very close to stall, you're at the edge of the flight envelope. It takes a very skilled pilot to not only uh, handle the aircraft, uh, it, it, you know, very close to stall, but also to land very precisely on the aircraft. So we're, we're moving that a variability from the pilot and building it into a system that uh, controls the motors but controls the trajectory of the aircraft as well as the flaps and other you know stuff on the aircraft to uh, to 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 land safely and repeatedly on a precise spot on the runway uh, and, and stop the aircraft very quickly okay perfect yeah it definitely sounds like there's plenty of advantages apart from just the kind of emissions free operation to yeah to, to to basically going going electric in in this instance another blog post that i saw um on on your webpage was about the approach that you're taking about subscale modeling and i'd be curious to hear a little bit more about you know, could you perhaps explain what is involved in subscale modeling and what some of the benefits are in terms of its approach? Yeah, yeah. Well, first, let me say that, uh, you know, the approach we're taking is, is no different than a standard approach that any aircraft development program would take. And this is the process that we followed at Bahana. Um, and, uh, you know, the, these type of aircraft that we're building the stole because of the control system I told you about earlier, 
uh, as well as v, you know, VTOLs are all fly-by-wire. And what that means is for, for these types of aircraft is that there's a, a very important software component to this. Um, and so the first, on the software side, uh, the first step is a building a simulation environment where you can test this control system. And on Vahana, we, we built a simulation environment where uh, you, know, you, could, you could see how the controls worked when the plane was, was flying in vertical lift mode. And then as it transitioned through how the aircraft was going to behave uh, as it transitioned to horizontal flight and then how it would behave in horizontal flight. And, and, and the control surfaces and the motors all have different functions during different each of those three different phases of flight. And so it's very complex. And so you want to simulate that uh, first and you want to basically have an environment where it's as low risk as possible. So simulation is the lowest risk environment you can do. Uh, and on the case of the aerodynamic side, you have uh, CFD, you know, computational fluid dynamics, and you have wind tunnel testing um, to, to, to vet that out. Uh, and, and then the, you go to the next kind of risky thing, which is a subscale model. And, and so we've got a simulation environment uh, right now, and we have a uh, subscale model. Now, the, the very first subscale model we have is an off-the-shelf, uh, you know, we bought it at a hobby shop. And we modified it with distributed electric propulsion, and we've added our own um, control system. And so we're, we're do, doing very little kind of aerodynamics testing there because it's just an off-the-shelf airframe, uh, and most of it's about just uh, understanding the controls and different ways we can build the the uh, precision approach and landing system that I mentioned earlier. So uh, that gives us a, a very low risk and inexpensive way to to start doing that, and it's really the first step, you know, outside of simulation to doing that. Uh, and then once you perfect things there, you can move those controls uh, and that, those algorithms into a, a full-scale aircraft. Uh, and so um, the steps are essentially simulation, uh, subscale, full-scale experimental, and then full-scale production. So I'm, I'm wondering, you know, what are some of the kind of, maybe specifically in your case related to, to, to STOL or ESTOL, what are some of the specific kind of design drivers that you really need to get right? Or perhaps, you know, what are some of the key challenges that you need to address to make um, the aircraft you're developing um, a, re a reality? Is it mainly just, you know, that it's, it's an entirely new aircraft and you don't know where to put the batteries yet, or you don't have the battery power and you have to kind of like make the aircraft as light as possible, you know, just kind of throwing some ideas out there. What, what are some of the, the, the key things that you need to tackle to make this uh, aircraft a reality? Well, I think the most important thing is the aircraft has to meet the requirements that we've defined for it. There's tons of examples of aircraft that were developed that <clears throat> was kind of somebody's science project and was really interesting, but uh, didn't really fit a need in the market. Or they made a decision to use a certain engine that uh, made the aircraft <clears throat> way too expensive, you know, not competitive with other aircraft out there. Uh, so, so it's really important that we build an aircraft that, that meets the, the key requirements that we've defined. Um, you know, some of those are, are on our website, but others we're kind of holding close to the vest for now. Um, but in terms of like technical risk, uh, you know, one of the one of the advantages of a stall aircraft is that it's it's very conventional aircraft. You know, it's fixed wing. It's going to be mechanical flight controls. Uh, we're we're doing everything we can to to just add only that little bit of new magic to it to give it these new capabilities. And that new magic is the is the propulsion system, the electric propulsion system. Uh, in the control system that I mentioned earlier. Uh, otherwise, outside of that, everything is very, very conventional. Um, whereas on a VTOL, uh, every bit of the aircraft is new magic. And uh, that adds a ton of cost and complexity, particularly in certification and designing the aircraft to, to 
meet the appropriate standards for certification. Uh, I would say the highest risk item is really the, the batteries and the propulsion system. Uh, based on, you know, we really wanted to build a, a pure battery electric aircraft, but in talking with the, uh, the companies that we've talked to, um, we're not going to get the range that, that we need. Uh, and when you look at where these warehouses are and stuff, they're typically, you know, a couple hundred miles, 100 to 200 miles uh, apart or, uh, you know, and so uh, if we did pure battery electric, we might get 50 mile range. Uh, and, and then there's also some pretty uh, onerous reserves uh, these days, you know, 45 minutes to 30 minute reserves. Um, in addition to your destination, you have to fly the, you know, be able to fly to an alternate. And those reserves are really hard to meet with a pure battery electric aircraft, and, and they're, they're trying to get waivers for it and all that. But at the end of the day, that means a change to the regulations or some additional hurdles that you have to get over to bring the aircraft to market. So we're, our, our first aircraft will be hybrid electric, which will give us quick turnaround times, uh, as well as longer uh, range uh, that, that, that's needed. So, so I guess to answer your question directly, the propulsion system and the batteries and that whole hybrid electric system really hasn't been done before uh, on aircraft. Uh, and, um, uh, and so that's probably the area where we're, we're spending a lot of effort to really find. And there's lots of motors out there today that we can buy, but it's not clear uh, <clears throat> which ones are appropriate for, for certification and for production. And so if, if it's so I'm, I'm just kind of like as a follow up question about the, the hybrid part is it does that mean that basically a fuel cell will then be driving uh, or powering the same electric motors or is it a, a combination of a, a, a typical kind of jet powered aircraft and an electric aircraft? Well, you, you there's different ways you can do a hybrid. Uh, the most likely configuration is that where you have a, a, a uh, internal combustion engine of some sort. It could be a small turbine like an APU. It could be a piston. Uh, it could be diesel. It could be uh, uh, what's called MoGas or you know a car gas or aviation fuel. Just some kind of engine that powers a generator, uh, and then the generator uh, powers both the batteries and the electric motors. And uh, what, what's nice about that is that the generator recharges the batteries when they use, and then the batteries give you some additional surge power. Uh, energy for surge during takeoff, for example. So you can size the gasoline engine for, for cruise as opposed to having to size it for, for takeoff. Uh, and, uh, and so those, all those, those, those kind of four elements, the, the engine, the generator, the batteries, and the motors all have to work together to make that happen. Okay, perfect. So you, you previously mentioned um, one of kind of the, the technologies that you're working on, this kind of distributed electric propulsion system, or basically a key capability of, of going electric is that you can have all of these smaller uh, propellers distributed over the wing, and that gives you some aerodynamic and efficiency um, benefits. But another technology that I spotted on your webpage was something called the virtual tail hook. Now, it sounds quite fancy. So could you uh, maybe explain what the virtual tail hook is? Yeah, so the virtual tail hook is kind of a nod to to my Navy days. Even though I didn't fly a, a carrier aircraft, I, I still uh, you know, uh, think that whole thing is pretty cool. So uh, carrier aircraft put down a tail hook in order to land in very short distances. When they land, the tail hook grabs a wire on the runway and it stops the aircraft in very short distances. And so uh, while our aircraft won't have a tail hook and we're not going to require any cables be installed on the runway, uh, we're going to kind of virtually do the same thing, which is it's kind of that, 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 that control system I told you about earlier. So the virtual tail hook is kind of this um, broad reference to the ability to 
um, do a, a very safe and repeatable and precise landing uh, and then stop the aircraft very quickly. And, and then the other side of that is to, to be able to take off uh, and climb out uh, in very short distances and climb out at a, a steep angle and do all that very safely as well. Okay, perfect. So you mentioned previously that you had some background um, in autonomy. And um, of course, you, you currently have probably plenty of other technical um, problems to solve in your development process. But maybe in the future, how do you see autonomy fitting into the future of, um, of airflow? Yeah, yeah. And well, I, I'll tell you, building an aircraft by itself is a, is a huge endeavor. And, uh, you know, adding in a, our own autonomy system on top of that's, you know, crazy, ridiculous effort. So we don't really want to take that on. You know, certainly uh, I, I spent a lot of time at, at a, you know, on the Bahana program looking at autonomy and, and understanding the issues around autonomy. And I, I would say we all, you know, everybody in the industry wants to build an autonomous aircraft. Uh, there's, there's, there's very compelling safety reasons around that. There's compelling reasons of getting the pilot and the, you know, that, that weight uh, out of the aircraft. Um, but the regulations that we have in place worldwide are, you know, have, have been in place for, for, for many, many decades and uh, are firmly ingrained in the idea that there's a pilot in the cockpit. And so it, it's very, very risky for us to build a business around the idea that these regulations are going to change in our favor in the time frame that we want them to. And so it's, it's very, very uncertain uh, when that's going to happen. And the regulators don't have any incentive to sort of rush this into market. Uh, and, and to have these autonomous aircraft flying around, uh, you know, without all the right safety um, uh, considerations uh, thought through and put in place. And it, it's everything from from uh, not only flying the aircraft itself, but um, how, to, how the aircraft would handle emergencies, uh, standards around sense and avoid, standards around air traffic control communication, standards around cybersecurity. Um, standards around operating in a GPS denied environment. We're basically taking the Tesla model, which is Tesla wants to build a fully self-driving vehicle, um, but first they're putting a uh, putting a person in there as a driver. They're collecting tons of data. They're building a business, building a company, uh, and and then you know when it all comes together, it will all come together. Uh, in the meantime, they'll they'll be collecting tons of data and have built a really incredible business. Uh, and we'll be in a leadership position, really, to to do that. So we, we take the same view, which is let's get the aircraft out there. Let's get this new electric aircraft technology in service, learn from that, collect a ton of data along the way, and then use that to inform the, um, uh, the autonomous technology. And, you know, it, it's already happening now. While we're doing that, there'll be other companies evolving autonomous technology, and most likely it will evolve as a kind of a, a, a safety backup for existing pilots um, because there's very few places around the world where you can actually fly that, uh, fly a plane autonomously. And uh, certainly, you know, urban areas uh, carrying people, it's, it's, you know, that's going to be a long, long ways out before that happens with autonomous aircraft. So they'll start with, you know, small drones in remote areas and, and, and increase in size uh, and, and then eventually maybe carry people in remote areas and, You'll see trials and pilots, but you, you know, we believe it'll be quite a while before you can really grow a business of any size uh, with autonomous aircraft. So that's why we're putting a pilot in first and then move to autonomy. So um, to summarize, I would say we are building an autonomous aircraft, but the path that we're taking has a pilot in there first as a mechanism to collect data and build the business and then evolve that to autonomy when the regulations will support that. 
Yeah, I, th- I think that's basically a, a very wise approach. And I think it's an excellent example, actually, how um, something might be possible on the engineering side, but that does not necessarily mean that people will actually go out and do it because maybe the business case isn't there or the regulations aren't there. So you have to really look at the, the project from a very holistic viewpoint to be able to decide what to pursue and what not to pursue, or maybe what to look at at, at a later date. You know, you, you, you bring up a, a really good point, Rainer, and, and um, you know, we've had to make a conscious decision to actually pull back on a lot of technology that we could include in the aircraft, but have chosen not to, uh, you know, sense and avoid technology, you know, some autonomous brains in there, uh, fly-by-wire, we feel very strongly would actually negatively impact the, the, the aircraft's ability to be successful in the market, um, because those technologies add risk and cost. Uh, and, and, and effectively delays to the program, uh, and they don't add a lot of value right now um, because of the regulatory environment or you know whatever. Primarily the regulatory environment, uh, and and so when you take this kind of Silicon Valley mindset, which is let's let's kind of find this really disruptive technology and, and use it in this market, it, it doesn't really apply to aviation. I think there's going to be some disappointed investors who who have taken that 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 thought process that works really well for you know, uh, enterprise software or works well for some kind of marketplace. Um, but it's, it, it doesn't really apply to aviation because uh, uh, safety is such a critical part of aviation that uh, you know, revolutionary leaps in technology are, are rarely embraced or rarely successful. You know, sometimes that, uh, it's an interesting conversation with investors who, who wonder why we don't have the latest technology on there and, and because it will actually hurt us, not help us. Yeah, the world of bits is definitely um, quite different from the world of atoms. Um, I, I just wanted to know, so what is the current state of um, the project? So where are you in terms of um, the development of the aircraft and um, what is on your roadmap for the near-term future? Yeah, I, I wish I, I don't mean to be cagey, but um, you know I can talk about sort of what we have publicly on our on our website, and um, and that is the, the you know the subscale model, uh, and um, uh, you know the next logical step is is full scale aircraft, but I can't really talk too much about that uh, at this point. So we're you know we're we're at the very beginning of a you know uh, of a of a long journey and a very exciting journey and. Uh, you know, and, and so simulation and subscale is the, is the very beginning of that. And, you know, the subscale will mature uh, and then there'll be some full scale stuff that will mature. Uh, and uh, so I, I think you'll see some exciting stuff come out here in the future. But that's about all I can say for now. Yeah, that's absolutely fine. So in terms of all of the exciting stuff that's going to be coming out in the futures in the future. So how can and where can listeners stay up to date with uh, all of your developments? Yeah, so our, our website is is a, a good place to do that. We also um, post probably the the most updates are on Twitter. We just put a lot of random stuff up on Twitter, so I think it's Airflow Arrow is our is our Twitter name, uh, and then we also post uh, sort of more major announcements and stuff on LinkedIn on a, on a fairly regular basis. Okay, perfect. Well, thanks uh, for coming on the podcast today, Mark. It was um, really a pleasure speaking to you, and I, I personally learned a lot. Um, is there anything before we close that you that you want to uh, mention? Uh, no, I think we covered it all, and appreciate you uh, having us on your show. Great. Thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. All right. Thanks, Rainer.
If you would like to learn more about Airflow, then head over to airspaceengineeringblog.com forward slash podcast, where you will find show notes about everything we discussed in today's episode. And if you enjoy the Airspace Engineering Podcast, then there are a number of ways you can support it. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're tuning in. You can share it on social media with your friends and family, or you can support the podcast directly on Patreon. And with that, thank you very much for listening and talk to you next time.